Hello everybody and welcome again to another episode of What Would The Smart Party Do? This week you've got both of us not in the same room but on the same podcast which we'll have to do you for today and the discussion that we're going to have today is based on a little bit of memory for both myself and Gaz um, and it's a bit of a perennial subject and I'm not talking about immersion. This is one of the favourite subjects of any group of role players when they get together of a certain vintage and that is Games Workshop, dun, dun, dun. the Evil Empire, um, the the company that, that still manages to generate a great deal of discussion, discussion amongst gamers of all stripes and, and certainly of a certain age, as I say. So um, myself and Gaz have both worked for the Evil Empire in the past, um, and we'll no doubt go into a little bit of detail on that. But I think Games Workshop is always a popular listen because people have so many opinions on everything that Games Workshop do, even if it doesn't seem directly related to role-playing these days. I think it still is. It generates discussion, it generates interest, and there's plenty of historical data to go into as well on the stuff that they used to do and the stuff that they're doing now. And and it's just a good topic, I hope. So let's see how we get on. So um, it has been remiss of me to talk for a minute already without saying hello to my sparring partner, Gaz. Hello, Gaz. Hello, Baz. What I want to know is what the Romans ever done for us. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, the, I tell you what, the, the question is, I've forgotten the question. The question is, what would the smart party do when confronted with Games Workshop? Or what has Games Workshop ever done for us? Guys, what has Games Workshop ever done for you? Give me a very pittance of a wage for a little time. Um, yeah, there's, there's lots of stuff. I'm sure some stories will come out about our times at Games Workshop because we have more stories than we could fit into an hour, frankly. Um, but despite mm. the fact that the regular punch bag of every game that I say or every forum I've been on, there's actually some really good stuff to come out of Games Workshop. Um, apart from experience, like some of the training there, some of the people, some of the experiences. So I think there's a wealth there to go at. And probably one of the first things that springs to mind is despite the fact that everybody thinks GWI 2 edited fascist lizards, and don't get me wrong, there's people at the top and shareholders who probably are. I think the tyrannies are in charge. Um, there's a bunch of people down below <laughs> that are all about the hobby. So one of the first lessons I got there was build the hobby. And you'd think as a, a manager, it'd all be about like sales and how to push more super glue on kids and all that kind of stuff. But actually, the, the big selling point was build the hobby and build a community and get people into a store playing games and having fun because then the money and all that kind of stuff follows on. But something that can be lost, I think, certainly amongst some of the people who consider themselves RPG designers now, or look for how to monetize things, or that sort of uh, affair, and with Kickstarters that we've discussed as well quite recently. Actually, the way to make a bit of money in this hobby, and or gaming in general, is to make it fun, make it about the game, because that's what we're all, all here for, actually, isn't it? And uh, if you concentrate more on making your games fun, and having fun, and creating a great atmosphere, and a little community, with everybody enjoying the same sort of thing, then, yeah, a bit of money might trickle your way, but let's keep it front and centre. We're all here to have a laugh, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, agreed. Um, I think one of the things that Games Workshop is absolutely amazing at is in the climate, whatever climate you want to look at, whether it be RPGs, miniatures, games, publishers even, they've been a very successful business for a, a really long time. Um, and that in itself, you've got to show respect to that. And I know that Games Workshop doesn't get a huge amount of respect from some people in the gaming community, and, and I kind of guess we'll get into the whys that is. But 
But for me, they paid my mortgage for 10 years. So that's a good thing. Uh, or more <laughs> to be to be more true to the picture that actually happened was um, many people spent money on little lead soldiers that paid my mortgage for 10 years. And I had a fantastic time working at Games Workshop. It opened my eyes to so much stuff, both from a hobby perspective, as you say, Gaz, um, and from a management perspective and leadership and so many of the skills that I've taken into my work life since. I learned them all at the knee of Mother Games Workshop. It was a brilliant company to work for. And there's no such thing as a perfect company to work for, but they were brilliant. And and I sit on the sidelines now, having left them in ooh, 2005, something like that. And 10 years later, I still keep an eye on them. They're like your first football team, I suppose. I kind of watch with interest as they do their little shenanigans every now and again. They make their announcements or don't make their announcements. And I just love watching it. And I love that almost as much as I love watching gamers get really irate at everything that Games Workshop does as if it's anything to do with role playing and and, and arguably has it ever had anything to do with role playing so <laughs> I guess that's point one on the agenda Gaz is what, what has Games Workshop got to do with role playing why are we even talking about them White Dwarf magazine that's, that's one of the Correct. big ones that comes up quite a lot White Dwarf isn't like it used to be it's now just a tread mag for them the bastards well, yeah, it is these days. It's just a catalogue for selling toy soldiers. But they actually gave us that magazine in the first place. It was packed full of uh, old diens of the, the role-playing worlds within now, just like some guy who wrote an adventure who turns out to be film masters or all those that kind of stable of the older gentlemen, if I may call them that, of the, the role-playing scene. There was lots of different adventures. I first learned about lots of role-playing games through reading White Dwarf magazine, because we didn't really have role-playing magazines, but we had White Dwarf, and as well as Toy Soldiers and stuff like that. It had some great RPG content. And yeah, they drifted mm. off and did their own thing, and now they just sell the little Toy Soldiers, which is fine. But rather than get angry about it, I'm more misty-eyed for looking back at the days and what it gave us in the first place, because when we started out, there wasn't an internet. It didn't exist. And magazines like that were the thing that kept role-plays together. Letters pages... You can actually write in mm. through the Barbarian comic. I mean, it gave role players um, a communal talking point. If you did bump into someone at a local community centre or a convention, if you managed to make one of them and all the rest of it, everybody read White Dwarf and could talk about those old comics or the letters or an adventure we've all played or that sort of thing. So apart from anything else, it was a little bit of a, a common touch point in community. Mm. Yeah. White, White Dwarf was a superb magazine and and... You will take the first 100 issues from my cold, dead hands. <laughs> There's not much in gaming that, that I won't flog on if you know my passions have passed on to something new or whatever. But I still have those first 100 copies, and, um, and just occasionally I flick through them. And to this day, they are still a fantastic resource. They are full of adventures, full of articles. Yeah, it looks a bit dated sometimes, but it was just packed. And it was, it was always pretty good at, at touching an awful lot of bases, before it became strictly an in-house magazine, you could get your fit your fix of RuneQuest, um, Golden Heroes, which was a GW game, I know that, but but even so, Tunnels and Trolls, plenty of D and D, but never exclusively D and D either. I never really held it as a completely D and D magazine. That was for Dragon, and it was very very British. And the gaming scene that I was in at the time kind of mirrored what was in White Dwarf every month which would be to play a few things, play a few weeks of something, collect another game, 
Games Workshop would import some really cool stuff from America. I th- my first RuneQuest box was had Games Workshop written on it, for example, and yeah. that's true of Call of Cthulhu as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if nothing else, they, they brought role-playing to Europe, and I know that you can do as much historical research into this as you want, but they very nearly were, you know, they were very nearly part of TSR for a little while, but but the original Games Workshop produced White Dwarf, which, as you say, mate, was the community when there wasn't a community, um, and and that that was a great thing. And you could you could dip into it once a month by going down to W. H. Smith and spending your seventy five pence, I think it was the first White Dwarf I ever bought, and you really felt like you were part of something. And I I would read the adverts as much as I would read the articles and scenarios just to find out what shops were in what towns. And back then there seemed to be a shop in every town. And if I ever went on holiday with my folks, I'd go and look it up. Um, I can still tell you the name and the address of the shop that used to be in Chester. And I don't think it's been there for 20 years, but I remember <laughs> it from the advert in White Dwarf. So, yeah. And the letters page was the world's slowest edition wars. <laughs> yeah, to write in a wait a month to see the reply. <laughs> then you could get good and angry about but, it and write your, your rebuttal. Oh, when you could the month. get proper angry. And you, could, you could do your rebuttal on a typewriter. <laughs> well, yeah, loved yeah, all yeah. of that, mate. And it was huge kudos to being in White Dwarf as well. Huge kudos. A couple of my mates in my club got like a monster in Fiend Factory. And I thought, well, first thing I thought, obviously, was you bastard. I'm really jealous. And and the second thing I thought was, why didn't they print mine? (laughs) 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 Which were obviously better, weren't they? Clearly, clearly, despite being completely unwritten. And that was half the trouble, wasn't it? It was actually writing stuff back then. But if you sent it into White Dwarf and it got published by them, I always imagined you had to be of really top quality to get anything produced by White Dwarf because it was untouchable. It was like sending something off to the BBC and asking them to make a play out of it. Mm-hmm. I, I That's how I feel like it now. You know, It's like they wouldn't give me a shot, would they? And, of course, they would do. And when we ended up working for Games Workshop, we realised it was just a bunch of beardy old blokes who liked watching test cricket, smoking roll-ups, and would publish any old thing that landed in the in-tray. <laughs> Quite. And that, I think it was um, another thing I got was the, the sense of hobby and, and what that means. Mm. I remember from my, my team leader training, one of the first days I was down for the induction, I think it was John Stellard at the time, was the, the guy delivering it. And he loves tanks. What he can't tell mm. you about World War Two tanks isn't worth knowing, frankly. Um, but he got into like how, you know all these pictures and showed you where hydraulics had gone and how the gun angle had changed and just like immense detail for about five minutes until even as a bunch of like young lads who were into war and games and stuff like that, we were starting to glaze over a little bit. Uh, and he sort of related to us that that's what a hobby is about. You know, if you're not in that hobby, it should be impenetrable to you. And that's the thing with like you know mums and dads who don't get role playing. My mum still doesn't, or you know miniatures game or whatever it is. And that's the way a hobby should be. And there was lots of other lessons that came out of that speech that are sort of lost in the mist of time to to a lesser degree. But one of the things he instilled is you should be passionate about what you do. And it doesn't matter if outsiders can't really understand it or anything like that. It's that you love it, and you find other people who love it as well. And that's. That's a really great thing to have, you know. That's a, that's something to strive for, and it doesn't matter what everybody else says, or what they understand or don't understand, or if they think it's weird or whatever else. Screw those guys. We've got a great hobby, uh, and being part of the hobby is a really good thing. And I think at a time back then, when you know you kind of got bullied at school for having a D and D manual and that kind of stuff, it was really good to come out and find a like a proper company preaching this kind of stuff. It's the sort of thing that 
Simon Pegg will get shared on social media for now by saying like geek's cool and you should just like what you like. Well, Games Workshop were preaching that in the you know nineteen eighties nineties sort of thing. So fair play to them for that as well. Yeah, do you, you know what, mate? I I had the same speech from John Stallard as well, and um, I, again I learned so much. But that induction was absolutely terrifyingly brilliant. Um, and you go on an induction back in the day with Games Workshop, you probably still do. Every company does it now. I'm I'm currently sitting on an induction in a company I'm working for now, and. And you get shown around a little bit and you get the guided tour and you get to see the brand and the culture and the values. And, and it's all good fun. And they might show you a few skills on how to sell or how to speak to people or, or whatever it is in your chosen field. And, but immediately you knew you were working for a different company with Games Workshop when they presented you with your uniform, which was a badge of honor because it's got a dirty great imperial eagle emblazoned across the back of it and you really did feel like you were something special and even from the interview process i remember that the first thing they asked you in an interview back then was tell us a joke which you wouldn't get past hr now but it had to be as filthy as you could imagine and if it didn't make them laugh that was the end of the interview Um, but it was all about like you know can you be one of the and, and it is fair to say can you be one of the lads I think. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I met two women in, in my 10 years at Games Workshop. Um, and one of them was in HR, and, uh, and the other one was, uh, was a female sales assistant in the Plaza store. And, um, and she wasn't there for very long either. But it's very much a, a laddish kind of culture, but a benign laddish culture. It was a mixture between a sort of a rugby club, a church, and the territorial army. Um, but they absolutely made you part of the unit very early on and if you watch any of those shows like ultimate hell week sas on the tv (laughs) wasn't that dissimilar to joining (laughs) games workshop because you had to be able to drink for a start and (laughs) i mean properly drink um and you had to be able to swear i remember bartering sales targets for um for drinks like i was was going up asking some of the the management if i can run the free voucher at the bar and they were like they were asking how much of my target i need to make in order for them to give me that that stub of a ticket (laughs) <laughs> and I said yes to it all. Obviously, like an idiot. <laughs> but you know, what else? Yeah, are you gonna yeah, yeah, young yeah. and foolish. Yeah, uh, it's a great culture, and 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 strangely, you know, all of that secret language. John Stallard talked about that being a real part of the hobby as well, didn't he? So you know, it's a hobby if it's got its own jargon and its own yes. references to things, and that's how you know it's not just a pastime. And when we sneered at pastimes, pastimes are stuff like backgammon or or even football. Yeah. To be fair. But, you know, if you've got a secret language, if it's really, really obscure, if nobody else understands it, and if it's something you could totally obsess about, it's a hobby. And that's a good thing. And then they immediately followed that up with, and that means it's not for everyone. And that's a really good thing. So one of the the myths about Games Workshop is that they want everybody to buy their stuff. Well, yeah, everyone wants that. I mean, that's not unusual in a corporation. But they totally get that it isn't for everyone. And I spent as much time in my years in retail telling people it's not for them as telling people it was for them. And that was a cool thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. One of the times when it kind of fell down is they went through cycles of trying to sell different stuff like Gorkamoka or probably Epic mm. to a, le- a lesser extent, which are two of the games that were around when I was there. And they just didn't really, they weren't, they weren't that good or they didn't fit in as well. But the management were very much, you know, this is great, and you must play it lots and see how great it is, which kind of went against the grain of uh, everything else they've been telling us because most managers I knew were saying, well, it's a bit rubbish, actually. We don't, we don't really get on mm. with this, but kind of forced to run with it. 
And then you got that humorous mm-hmm. thing a few months later when it wasn't selling, and they shouted and saying, why don't you tell us? So <laughs> we kind of all did, yeah. you know, when you sat in uh, one of those manager meetings and there's everybody from the UK, I think three managers had hit target and everybody else hadn't. It's kind of like, well, it's not us <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> but that's what management told yeah, us at the time, yeah, obviously, yeah. because, you know, you can't do right for doing wrong sometimes. But I think that's another important lesson that even within the hobby, not every game is going to be a winner. Not every army is for everybody. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, And it's the same with role-playing, you know what I mean? We're in a mm-hmm. quite a broad hobby of role-playing, but some games aren't going to be for you. You might not like D&D, and that's all right. You don't have to go telling everybody else that D&D is rubbish. You know, it's just that that game's not for you. There's plenty of other games out there. Mm. And I think one of the things we need to kind of get over is the, um, without going completely workshop of everything's amazing, is working out what's what's actually good for you and promoting that rather than trying to work out what you don't like and spending all your energy and telling people why it's rubbish. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, um, we'll come on to this a bit later on. Uh, uh, we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments later because I've managed okay. to find a copy. And, oh, and I'll, I'll leave that... I'll leave that hanging, but um, but one of the Ten Commandments is uh, promote the hobby. And in Games Workshop, there was there was basically three ways to engage with the hobby, and that was either through gaming, perhaps understandably, but funnily enough, that's that's changed recently. The other one was working, and as as in working on your hobby, which would be painting, converting, constructing, or even just collecting. So that would be considered to be working. The other one was shopping, which is just like you know buying stuff, which is not it's actually not that unreasonable for a company that wants to make profit. So those were the three ways of engaging with it. And Games Workshop never really minded which ones you were into. It was always perfectly acceptable to be a painter, perfectly acceptable to be a gamer, perfectly acceptable to be a shopper, um, someone who just collects the stuff. Uh, And I always quite liked that there was three strands to it. From the outside, it probably looked a bit more monolithic that you had to paint your own army and take it to a tournament. That, that was never actually the case. There was loads of different ways of engaging with it. But if your only experience of Games Workshop was the retail stores, I can totally see how people would have got a false impression of what Games Workshop was about. Because those retail stores were the recruitment grounds. They were the front line of the hobby. But it was very, very deep behind that. There was loads of different ways of engaging with it. And to to bring that to role-playing, it is perfectly acceptable to just you know be a gamer of a ter- certain type of game or just be a GM or just go to conventions. It doesn't make it that you're not a fully balanced scorecard type of gamer and that you should be looked down upon by other people. There's a million different ways to engage with it. And in Games Workshop speak, as long as you dropped a few quid into the tills every week, that was absolutely fine. And, and we had we had targets, didn't we, guys? I mean, we had money targets to hit. But that that is not an unreasonable thing to do for a profit-making company. But equally... It was never make money at all costs. It was make money by promoting the hobby in your community and growing that community that would come to you willingly. And and I don't know how many times people said to me, it's just a happy accident. We put a till in your shop because people just what they want to drop money in it on the way out, almost like a tip jar. But we did not work from behind the till. We worked from the intro table and from the painting table. And that that was where we made our money. Yeah, absolutely. And the sort of, I think it was the whole culture in Games Workshop as well. It, it, it fed through to everything. So one of the examples, I think it was at Alton Towers at the manager meeting there we had one year. There's a couple oh of bits for that. Oh, God, I've still got the hangover. There's a couple of bits. One of them was the uniforms, I remember, because I think at the time before we went, everybody got a red polo shirt, and then we got there, and they said, look at yeah. your seats, and all the managers had a black polo shirt to wear. 
And someone said, is that divisive? And I said, yes, yes, it is for a very good reason. You are managers, you need to act like it, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but the other bit was I think we'd, we'd missed the target for that year by – it worked out as something like one super glue a week per shop or something like this, some ridiculously small amount that we could have probably got over the top for. Mm. But they reinforced that message by showing a clip from a bridge too far where there's the German – Soldier comes across the bridge at arm and asking for surrender. They say, we're terribly sorry, we haven't got the facilities and all that kind of stuff. But he was making everything, even that message about, you know, that how we've missed the financial target into more of a kind of a war game and just keeping that. Everything was dripping with soldiers and gaming and war and stuff like that. You know, it's just every message, every every fibre, like the, the people in charge, barring one or two examples from time to time, were hobbyists as well. You know, they, they actually believed in what they were doing. They, you know, they loved gaming and I think that's something you can carry forward into whatever else you're doing but certainly from a role playing point of view as well you know what I mean if you're not into doing prep and stuff like that don't worry about it but I like doing prep for my games because I, I find it cool you know I like making I'll spend more time doing character sheets and finding a font than actually writing a plot half the time but as you were saying earlier that's like that's just picking the bit of your hobby that you're into and exciting if mm. it, if I didn't find that interesting, I wouldn't try and force anyone else to spend four hours a night in the week going up to a convention trying to make character sheets. Just get one off the internet or whatever else. But you know, but being part of the hobby and being into it, I think that's something that's a really strong theme with the Games Workshop. And that can certainly help feed your, your sort of role-playing experience. Although if you're just a person who wants to turn up every week and roll some dice, that's fine too. But I've found what makes the best gamers or the best experiences I've had is people are really passionate about it in one way or another. Yep. Yeah, and and you would not get through the door of a Games Workshop interview, and I, and I think this is still true today, without being absolutely nut-crazy about Games Workshop products. You really did have to know your stuff. There was plenty of on-the-job training, but that on-the-job training was in ways of funneling your passion so that you weren't just dribbling on people when they came in through the door. But you absolutely had to have that passion, and it was absolutely expected that you spent your time probably as a Games Workshop customer, for 18 years solid before you even dared open the door and say, please, can I have a job with you? And there was a huge queue of people who wanted to work for Games Workshop, and getting in was an honour. Um, and they they made you work for it. You had to keep your hobby knowledge and your hobby passion absolutely at the front of your mind for 40, 50, 60 hours a week. Um, and it's not that you were tested on it by the company. You were tested on it by your customers because... One of the great responsibilities of wearing the black or the red shirt was that the kids that came into your shop, uh, and by kids I'm talking, I'm talking 11 years old to 111 years old, but you're all kids if you come into Games Workshop. They absolutely insisted that you be the total expert. I mean, I've been asked for my autograph before for working in a Games Workshop store by the kids who were so impressed with the models that you had painted and the armies that you had and the the sheer breadth of knowledge that you had and the passion that you had for it, that they kind of looked up to you. We were like everybody's big brother in our towns. And that was an awesome responsibility considering it was based off your knowledge of Eldar and um, the great losses of the Empire in the Warhammer world. I mean, that's, you know, I could have easily beasted Mastermind for a good 10 years solid <laughs> if that were allowed to be my specialist subject. <laughs> Quite easily, yeah. I think there's a, there was a great bit of fun as well in um, sort of playing the rubbish armies that nobody, every, you know, the kids are coming to be convinced that Chaos Space Marines are the best thing ever when they came out. And because of yeah. power creeping, you're trying to sell 
models, then they probably were quite good, to be honest. But I beat them all yeah. with Orcs and Goblins. And nobody else could have an Orcs and Goblins on me because the amount of metal you've got to buy was quite extravagant for the points values. But, you know, if you mm-hmm. work at GW back in the day, you got uh, models on weight. So you, you got like a kilogram of models for whatever it was, 10, 11 quid, something like that. So having a Goblin on it wasn't a problem because you could go buy them by the bucket. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you've got to buy them in blister packs of £5 for threes, you know, it's not the kind of army for anyone. Yeah. But being able to play those sort of obscure armies or try out different things that other people normally wouldn't do, and then proving to the kids that they did work with a bit of tactics and power behind it. And then, you know, you've got kids asking you how you did it, and well, how did that work, and why did you pick that? And you sort of teach them different tactics and get their little minds working, putting little seeds in there about different things they can try, or it's not just about having the biggest, most powerful thing, or just having a tank. If you do this and do that, then maybe this will happen. Or what would you think would happen if this went on? And you sort of teach them, you know, hardly life skills, I guess, but critical thinking and different ways around problems and just getting them a bit engaged and interested in something. I think we did a lot of good there, to be honest. Yeah, I'd take all of that, absolutely. And, and I would add to it that I think they did get some life skills because certainly in the stores that I was part of, you had to be absolutely on the edge of your wits all the time, both as a punter and as a staff member. And you weren't allowed to be dull and you weren't allowed <laughs> to be boring. You had to have opinions because, I mean, our shops were, were akin to like the, the greatest pub conversation you've ever had. And it, we didn't talk about Games Workshop all the time because we used to talk about war films as well, the other great thing in this life. <laughs> um, or local beers that we had tasted and, and local people that we had bested and it was it was just the the imagine you know when you go into these places and you speak to regular guys and they want to talk to you about football and the passion that they have is fantastic it's not particularly my thing i'm not really into it and sometimes if i'm brave i say i'm not really into football and i get that withering gaze imagine that passion but for everything except sports and and that's what it was like in the shop every single day and and the kids who would come in from school they had to be whip smart and they always were really really quick really clever really witty kids even the slightly duller ones they just got banged into shape by the other regulars <laughs> it was almost drop and give me 20 if you're going to be shit you know you're not allowed to be you've got to be on it and if you're not on it you're going to buy us all lunch because <laughs> you're going to have to do the, the burger king run today mate and they would love it it's like oh i got to i went to go and get the guys from games workshop burger king today yeah too right and then tomorrow we might pay for it <laughs> That was one of the things I did feel marginally bad about. When you got kids who were, um, they got some money, but it was definitely for food. You know, the parents made it quite clear. Like, you've got five pounds, but you need to eat some food for that. All right. And then they'd hold this, like, crumpled up fiver that was going soggy with the sweat in the palm, looking at a blister pack that was the same price and just thinking, if I don't eat, then I can have that Space Marine or something like that. And I'd say nine times out of ten, the Space Marine one, they'd happily starve themselves to buy a model. Yeah, every time. And they've still got those Space Marines and they can sell them on eBay if they want to be rich. <laughs> Buy two Mega Geeks. So um, bringing it, let's, let's see if we can wedge some role-playing into this then, given the, the nature of our podcast. But oh, yeah. um, Gaz, from, from your experiences then, mate, so were there, what? how big a part did role-playing games play at Games Workshop in the time that you were there? Whether that be staff, whether it be the company culture, whether it be the punters, you know, was role-playing allowed to be talked about? I wouldn't say it was disallowed. Um, in fact, I got in. I got into Games Workshop by talking about Earthdawn, funnily enough, our other favourite that we've got. 
That will get you anywhere in this life, my friend. Anywhere. Yeah, that's, that's how I got my current role. I think where it sort of... That's how I met my wife. Where the, <laughs> where the Venn diagram falls in is perhaps a sort of scenario writing. Because uh, we had weekly games nights. Kids would come along and play. And then sometimes, it, I think it went out to like twice a week. And then Sundays as well or something like that. At one point, they got a bit giddy about it. But you, like you say, the, the kids are all quite smart and they want something different. And you've got to maintain their interest to get them coming down. So you can't just say, like, bring a thousand-point army and fight each other. That gets dull quite quickly. Why bother coming down to a games workshop for that? So you have to come up with all kinds of different scenarios. Uh, King of the Hills and grab a flag and you've got to recover this thing and bring it over here. And you only have these sort of troops. And, you know, you get this for now and then in two turns' time, you roll to see if you can get that or the other. So in terms of, like, you know, thinking of complications for scenarios... Or other things for role playing plots and like bits and pieces that can come up or to make it more interesting. Those sort of things were brilliant. And again, you know, you've mentioned the kids being smart, but you could also like harvest their little minds as well for ideas. And I got some really cool stuff out of kids when you'd finish a games night with uh, your run of X number of scenarios and you'd be kind of running out of ideas by that point. And you'd just ask them, like, so what, what would happen next here? Cause you know, the Blood Angels got splattered against that wall and X, Y, and Z happened. Now what? And you get 50 different ideas about what could happen next. And you just you struggle to write it down quick enough. So in terms of getting ideas together and coming up with scenario, uh, or different scenarios, actually, that sort of thing, I think all the, the games nights and games workshop driven stuff there really helped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did exactly the same down in the South, mate. Um, the summer holidays were a chance to run a six-week campaign every year. Uh, and that was a major undertaking to think of a series of battles that would last for every day over six weeks and to have the massive tree diagrams and ladder campaigns and victory points and and you you wouldn't think there was that much to say about a two-sided war game but believe me there is and with the rich history of 40k and warhammer there was so much to draw upon and and yeah and, and guess what it's a bit like writing convention gaming sometimes the game at the table doesn't turn out to be the one you prepped but you know that's okay but it was a hugely instructive time to sit down with your staff or or your punters, as you say, with a blank sheet of paper and just try and write down some mad ideas for reasons for there to be an adventure, because they were adventures, really. They just happened to involve war most of the time. And then, of course, there was the skirmish games, because um, I was there for the for the, the times of stuff like Mordheim, which was an awesome skirmish game, remains an awesome skirmish game. And that's as close to, to role-playing as you're likely to get that involves figurines and terrain. Um, add to that stuff like Inquisitor, the 54 mil thing, mm-hmm. um, which which put a few wargamers' noses out of joint because it didn't have points values and it had a GM. Um, <laughs> it, it was looking, from my role-playing perspective, incredibly like a role-playing game for a very long time. So there was always stuff to write. And, and we used to have to produce flyers for it, which is the equivalent of doing ca- character sheets. We used to have to do posters for it. Um, reporting on stuff, do newsletters off the back of it. And and that's what we were paid to do for 40 hours a week while sitting there at the painting table, splashing some more blood red on blood angels. Um, and there there is no finer way to earn your, your money, despite, you know, it wasn't a great deal of money. You didn't no. get highly paid at Games Workshop. But, but then half that reason was because there was a queue of people behind you would have done it for nothing or even paid to do it. And, and it's it remains to this date the most fun I've ever had on a daily basis because that fun was writing campaigns, playing games, painting models, and just talking to the smartest group of people I've ever met. Yeah, it's a real shame about like the Mordheim and all that kind of stuff. Necromunda was the big one when I was there. We got yes. loads of stuff out. Yes. 
when you got your level ups and all the rest of it uh, and those summer spanning campaigns that was really great and I remember one of the major meetings we went to they were kind of asking for ideas and it was, it was kind of like a larger scale idea of us asking the kids or your staff for ideas management did it with all the managers as well they kind of stuck us in rooms and said right what have you got for us we need stuff to do mm. and that's sort of like moving more towards role playing is one of the things I try to do in my particular workshop group and we're edging more towards Necromunda and that kind of things. And I, I had got some people on board, but unfortunately we were kind of outvoted by all the old neckbeards who just wanted to fight with Marines and Orcs. Um, so that's, a lot of the ideas got poo-pooed. But I think the company itself was quite, a, quite open to doing different things if it got a you know a critical mass of people behind it as well. But yeah, that, that Necromunda stuff and all that kind of thing, that was really cool. And Blood Bowl back in the day, you know, where you got your star players who leveled up a bit or got crippled with injury and never came back again. I mean, there's elements of role playing. Yeah, there. Blood Bowl was an aberration, mate. I couldn't stand that bloody game. Could you not? Oh, well. I like <laughs> no. the original one. <laughs> no, I, I like Blood Bowl now, but I was, I was, I had the Games Workshop tattoo and it was all about the story and the environment and everything else and, uh, and the <laughs> idea of like sports arenas where chaos could show up and there could be orcs and goblins as the opposing team rolling up in a wagon. <laughs> it slightly did for me, yeah. but I was possibly the only man trying to put some story behind <laughs> some immersion behind my Blood Bowl team. <laughs> I think um, I think one of the things that's interesting is that the, the management culture at Games Workshop was really, really, really into creativity, stories, narrative, all of that kind of stuff. They just weren't into traditional tabletop role-playing games no. because God knows they tried it and tried it for a very, very long time. We opened this up by saying how long White Dwarf went. You know, those first hundred issues were role-playing gold. That's not an insignificant amount of time. But it just wasn't putting enough pounds in the pocket at the end of the day. But that didn't mean that the management culture were anti-role-playing. It's just that role-playing was what they did in the evenings and at the weekends. Um, their job was to sell Citadel Miniatures, and Citadel Miniatures bought that company a long time ago, and really they should have changed the name at the same time of the shops, I suppose. But Games Workshop wasn't really about games for a very, very long time. And that did seem to sneak up on, on role-players, who saw it as a bit of a betrayal, perhaps. But but the guys at the top of the company sold model soldiers by day, and, and most of them were in the sealed knot in the evening. Yeah. Doing reenactments and the rest of it, and loving their World War Two stuff, and really into that kind of thing. And, and, and most of them were role players, as far as I knew. And we had little role playing clubs that we would do in the evenings, but it was outside of work. It wasn't part of the working day. Mm. Um, and it got as, it got short shrift in the same way as it would do if I tried to talk about it at my, massive telecommunications company today they don't want me talking about D&D at work either it just it just seemed to get a bad rep that that role playing was banned at games workshop and I think far from it it's just it wasn't their thing it was like the great cthulhu looking down on humanity it was like beneath their notice not from any sense of of like it's not good enough for us they just thought it's got nothing to do with us is is that the feeling you got guys or something different um, yeah, back back in the day, it was definitely we play games, workshop stuff, and you know what you do in your free time is your business. It, it was that kind of like you can't go play an Earth Dawn afterwards, but it was like don't we're not interested in talking about Earth Dawn here. We, we talk about Warhammer Fantasy Battle. Why would you talk about anything else? What's wrong with you? That kind of feeling towards it. I, I did keep in touch with uh, some of the people, and, and there are some good friends. Some of them still at Games Workshop actually, so it's been interesting hearing the stories from head office and all the rest of it. And uh, one of the guys. Because talking about role playing, they did have that the the black industry stuff. 
that you know Warhammer 40k we're waiting for a role-playing game for that for decades and generations and it finally turned up sold out and got shut down immediately and sold off to someone else which is really weird so the same day yeah the, the kind of thing about it not making enough money didn't really hold up later on perhaps um, but there were still some people in key positions who didn't think that was part of the core business. So you can kind of respect it from the point of view of, we sell miniatures, that's our core activity, and that's what we're going to do. And you can see that with the new relaunch of Fancy Battle and the way they've gone with that and giving rules away, more or less. Uh, and it's all about buying models rather than big box sets and stuff. But one of the quotes I had secondhand, um, allegedly, in case I get sued, but one of the guys went up to speak to one of the bosses about role-playing games and why they couldn't do more of it. Uh, and the answer we got was along the lines of our uh, role-playing games are played by two tramps in a bus stop. And that was kind of the view of this particular manager in, in the high-up chain. So, yeah, I think and on the whole, most managers didn't mind. Uh, some people thought role-playing was a bit weird. Why would you do that? Which is funny when they sat around with a bunch of goblins they painting green at a table going, mm. D&D, isn't that for losers? You can't look at them like, lads, seriously, come on. Look at what you're doing. Mm. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. I think mostly, though, it's like you say, it's that core message. They're about selling toy soldiers and that hobby. So other things were always ancillary. And you, you talk about your, your soldiers because that's what's making you money and that's what we're all about, realistically. Mm. There's there's few people that were, had antipathy towards other things. But like I said, there were one or two higher managers who were just positively hostile or or perhaps a bit ignorant. Because as, as I've just said then, or, or you uh, reinforced, you know, 40k came along the, the role-playing game and sold that instantly, and they could have sold it 10 times over. Hmm. So, yeah. Was that a mistake? Possibly. But I think at the time, the view was it wouldn't sell that much, so why bother? And by the time they'd sold it, it was kind of too late at that point. They'd already let go of it in their own minds, is my view. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'd concur with that, mate. I mean, the, the business reality is that you take the biggest role-playing game in the world, which is still D&D, and if it's not D&D, it's Pathfinder, take either one add them together if you like is there enough interest in the uk to sustain a retail estate of 250 shops across the country and employ 2,000 people well there isn't and there isn't in america right now to do that so there was never any chance of that happening in the uk and it's you know it's time to face reality games workshop got a long way by selling all kinds of tabletop games a mixture of minis cards board games and role-playing games of course but that was in the bubble in the 80s when there was a D&D cartoon on the telly and fighting fantasy game books were in every newsagents. And it hasn't been like that now for 30, 40 years. Yet, still, if I want to go on the internet now and ask people what they think of Games Workshop, there'll be an awful lot of bile and hatred about the great betrayal <laughs> when Games Workshop moved away from role-playing games. I saw it referred to only last week as Games Whorehouse. I thought, well, that's, that's, that's pleasant. It's a, it's <laughs> and, a, nice and this way, was a role-playing gamer. <laughs> yeah you know what a nice chap that was who wrote that and you know it was a chap yeah. <laughs> um, and, and and but there is still that thing and i do kind of get it because as a punter when games at workshop gave up on role-playing games they didn't really tell us as punters that that was what their plan was or what they wanted to do in fact i don't think there was much of a plan it looked like an overnight decision um, you know it became the citadel miniatures catalog in one or two issues rather than any kind of like listen guys we're thinking about changing the way that we we operate our stores and all the rest of it and in some ways I, I kind of admire their brave decision to just you know screw it and just get on with their new business plan they don't really need to seek anyone's permission to do this stuff and 
and they've kind of been vindicated by history and that they're still going and plenty of friendly local game shops are not. But equally, as a punter, it did feel a little bit like, oh, I've just noticed that my White Dwarf magazine doesn't have any D&D scenarios in it. And actually, when did the letters page stop? And then, oh, and actually, you know, when did they stop taking submissions from people? And, and why hasn't there been any RuneQuest? And, <laughs> and you find yourself sort of shaking your White Dwarf every month and then going into the shop and realising that the role-playing section, well, first of all, it's a section now, <laughs> and then it got smaller and smaller and smaller, and then the people in the shops who'd got the wrong end of the stick started saying things like, no, nah, we don't do that anymore because it's for losers. <laughs> and they did because they're retail people and retail people are people. And sometimes people get it wrong and are stupid. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we've worked in other kinds of retail as well. We're both well aware of, you know, there's location, location, location. But shell space is king, you know what I mean? The amount mm-hmm. of models you can get on a six foot tall by three foot wide bit of space compared to how many books you can get on there. The books don't sell enough. You know, just the, the tiny shops, a lot of the games workshops, by virtue of the fact of how much turnover there is and how much it costs for force space. So you've got to pack it with stuff that sells, and if it doesn't sell, it doesn't get space in the store. I think the missing point for yep. uh, for games workshop is they could have quite happily kept trucking out the, uh, the role-playing line with, you know, just a handful of people, some freelancers, to keep that going, ticking over it, and just sold it online. Because there's a huge digital market out there. They didn't even need to print books necessarily if they could do it print on demand or anything else. I think they could have kept it going, but without having to give up shelf space. But then then again, I don't, I don't know how much money they actually made out of it. And more importantly, I don't know how much money they're making from selling their IP to FFG to produce all these books because they're sticking them out at a fair rate. Mm. So it depends. If they're getting a, a chunk of that change, it could well be easy for them just to go, okay, well, we'll take... 30% of whatever else you take in from your producing all these books and we'll do nothing except make soldiers. And that'd be one excuse. But they don't owe us anything. I think that's the curious thing I find. Games Workshop always seems to be that target for entitled gamers who think that their white dwarf should have scenarios in or whatever else. It's kind of like, well, they don't, they don't owe you anything. You know, George R.R. R. Martin doesn't actually owe us any more books in that Game of Thrones series. It's kind of, you, you've, you've invested in it, you love it, you kind of want more of it, but I think we've all got to step back a little bit and realise that nobody owes us that stuff. They can deliver it if they want to. If they don't want to, that's also their choice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and not only do they not owe it to us, we don't even need it. Um, these days, if you want to be into role-playing games, you don't need Games Workshop anymore. Arguably, they did us a favour by dropping out of the market and letting everybody else produce British games. Um, they just, you know, built a fantastically enthusiastic, passionate gaming community. And for all the sense that they may have felt a little bit abandoned when they moved on to other things, at least it made people get off their asses and start publishing their own stuff. And, you know, if you want to play role-playing games now, you wouldn't go into a Games Workshop store to look for them. You wouldn't go into any store to look for them. You'd get on the internet and you'd join communities and you'd have a look at those and you'd find yourself in quick receipt of a thousand different gaming systems and if you want to play Warhammer role-playing or Warhammer 40k role-playing, there's licensees that do it. And that that's that's good. That means you can get your gaming on in loads of different ways, and we're kind of not beholden to a single company to provide us with this stuff, um, whether to import it or make it themselves, which is what they did for, for a good decade or more. Um, and I think that's good. And one of the things that has changed, and where Games Workshop have softened their stance from when you and I were there, Gaz, is they do give out their licenses now. There was a time when they absolutely would not do that ever. 
Um, and one of the reasons for that is that they didn't want to see, you know, space marine lunchboxes. And that was the example that was used to be on more than one of occasion, because as soon as you start giving out a license for stuff, you start losing a great deal of control over what it is. Um, and even if you have to do approvals, all of a sudden you're having to fend off people who want to make lunchboxes or beach towels or luncheon meat. There was, there was mooted once in a meeting I went to, that luncheon meat looked like a space marine. Horrible. Um, and that's that's as anti-hobby as it gets. So yeah. they, they were, for a long time, they would never give out a license. And the fact that they're doing so at all now means they've loosened that a little bit because I think they do see it now as free money. But you know they've still got those guys on absolute lockdown in the video games world and the board games world and everything else to make sure it's absolutely on brand. Good for them. Yeah, keeping that strong IP has been, um, they get slated for it, it's been very good. It's still a great set of worlds they've got and all the rest of it. Um, I remember, again, again hearsay, so don't sue me, anybody, please. But um, one of the early drafts when they were doing a, a role-playing game for, for 40k sort of came back from a, the outside agencies that they'd uh, employed to do it. And you had careers like, not so much space marine, but like astronaut and pod racer and stuff like that. And it's clearly someone mm. who had absolutely no idea about the intellectual property that they were writing for. There was just some random game designer. Well, evidently, from the stories I've heard anyway. So a good thing they've done is maintain a really strong, solid brand. You know what I mean? There are mm. several other get yeah. role-playing companies out there who've handed out licenses. And some of the stuff you see come out, you're kind of like, really, is that? But again, it sort of takes mm. us back to, you know, the People will write for anything, won't they? And there's a market for it. If people will buy it, well, good luck to them, I guess. But I think, yeah, yeah, the, the Games Workshop IP has been good for that kind of gritty British fantasy and science fiction. That's unlike anything else that's out there, and they've maintained it very well. They get slated for it sometimes, but we've still got it, and it's something that across the world, globally, you know, is recognised and still frothed over. To be fair, so to to move on to something slightly different, then. We've talked about conventions here and there and that sort of thing. Games Day. How do you think the the mm. annual Games Day at Games Workshop compares to a convention or any of those sort of role-playing type conventions or mixed heavy ones? And is there anything you've kind of learned from those sort of days that you could apply forward or think there's perhaps something that we're missing these days in role-playing conventions mm. that Games Day had down? Games Day was a, an annual thing, still is an annual thing, and it was a massive deal even in retail, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean... We were we were absolutely expected to bring a coachload of frothing gamers to Birmingham every year to absolutely rinse it at Games Day, and the pressure was on in retail to make sure that we sold those tickets faster than anybody else, and we took more coaches than anybody else, and that was the sales element of it, and that was awesome in itself. The sheer level of promotion that went into getting people to attend Games Day was massive because it was just coaches coming from all over the country with banners. You know, the kids would make up the great big banner and we would all walk behind it and almost have like, you know, street fighting competitions, if you <laughs> call street fighting among some of the kids we had. But it, it's more like a dance off. I don't yeah, know. something but, like that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's but coaches, made, you know, really elaborate banners. Coaches coming down from Inverness yeah. or from Cornwall and all to meet in Bert, yeah. you know, they're going overnight and stuff like that. I think I remember from Blackpool, I had to yeah. sleep underneath the gaming table the night before because it was yeah. around the time of year it was in Blackpool. I couldn't get any accommodation at all. So I slept in the store because yep. that's all I could do. But at 4 a.m., there were kids banging on the window, ready to go, you know, that sort of thing. God knows what time yeah. they got up to come down from Aberdeen. 
Yeah, the, the promotional activity was something else, and uh, and you were a very special person indeed to get on the coach and um, and and watch our war films, which were strictly not for eight year olds. <laughs> um, so that we, you know, conventions could absolutely learn something about promotion, but you know, conventions don't have two hundred and fifty retail shops to to drive that level of engagement with the local community. But ga- but conventions do have access to gaming clubs. And I find it strange sometimes that gaming clubs don't make more of a presence at some cons. Some cons are very much club orientated. They're more like club meetings or gatherings. And that's, I think, a good thing. And then the other thing that, that we used to do on a shop by shop basis was, well, there'd be two things. The first thing is you'd have to supply a game for games day, which is the yeah. equivalent of showing up to a convention and GMing something. Uh, but there was a huge amount of kudos involved and rivalry with having an absolutely top quality game, something that was really innovative, really real spectacle that would grab the eye and that would keep people engaged over the course of six very, very noisy, hungover hours. So you would put a huge amount of effort into your game and it would be on the skeleton of a game of 40k or Warhammer or Battlefleet Gothic or whatever it was, but it would only be on the skeleton of that. It would be like a convention game, which is that you would absolutely twist and bend that structure to do something that was a real one-off, a real spectacle. We just weren't allowed to rock up with Empire versus Hawks and Goblins in a flat green field. You'd never get away with that. So just putting that sheer effort into a game was something. And then the second thing was you would contribute towards whatever was the big central display for that year like the entire chapter of Ultramarines or the Siege of Marienburg, where you would have 20,000 models versus 20,000 models, and every single shop and every single staff member would be responsible for between 5 and 20 models down to um, to a, a specific script that would be all assembled on the day and the rest of it, and you know, making making a great big central spectacle that everybody would go to every year to see. That was a big thing. And then the final thing was Golden Demon, which was the painting competition. And if one of your regulars did well at Golden Demon, well, actually, we used to get all the kids to enter Golden Demon because you got in for half an hour earlier. If you brought in something that was covered in snot and blood, you got in half an hour early. So it's like, you know, enter. But, you know, just that pride in being a great painter and being there amongst the exhibition. And I think I think that's the thing that, that conventions can learn from Games Day if they can learn anything, is this that sense of uh, achievement, pride, edifice, really constructing something incredible and amazing to make people go, wow, and want to pay to go to it. You know, don't do ordinary stuff. And, and, I, and I think conventions largely get this right, by the way. They don't do ordinary stuff. But getting community involvement in it and having it to be something that's got a real buzz before you even get there is the big thing. And I see that to varying degrees amongst convention organisers right now. Uh, you go to more conventions than I do, guys. What do you think? Yeah, I think you've made some very fair points there. I think certainly for larger conventions, there's more can be done. Um, smaller ones, like I'm going to furnish this weekend, there's only 70-odd people. and you, There's no space to do anything else. You're all rammed in cheap by jowl. So there's a limit to what they could do there, to be honest. Although it's a very good convention, and I recommend it to everyone. Um, but certainly the larger ones. I remember when we went to sort of the, the TSR-led Gen Cons and things like that. You had people in um, like Full Metal Armor or um, people giving Danax demonstrations, smashing shields up or hawking. Or all, there's all kinds of extra stuff that made spectacle that we just don't really see as much of anymore. And I don't think role playing mm. or miniatures gaming or anything like that on its own stands up. You need to make something else out of it, or 
You don't need to. You can still just hire a venue and get some people together and play some games. That's perfectly fine. But to get more out of it, I definitely see the need for creating more of a spectacle. Or I think it's a very good point you made there about groups and stuff like that. There's clubs up and down the country, but I very rarely see, for example, I don't know, let's pick a, a, a town off the top of my head, but Chester, you mentioned that earlier. You don't really see uh, Chester Role Playing Association, if there is one, come and offer some games and a couple of them have the same T-shirt yep. on or have theme scenarios or anything like that. You do occasionally see some GMs kind of get together and do some link scenarios, which is quite nice. But it'd be really good, considering that there are all these games clubs up and down the country, for them to kind of make a bit of a presence or an effort or put something on. It all tends to be on a volunteer basis anyway, but it is very ad hoc, and it'd be good to see convention organisers of larger conventions get groups of people together and look at getting either reenactors in or live action demonstrations or you know whatever painting competitions, miniature games demonstrations, just other stuff to make conventions a bit more interesting. I think far too often you kind of go into a convention and all you see is you know a Dalek, someone who's supposed to be David Tennant who's not much like him, and that's kind of like the nod to any kind of extracurricular activity or making it a bigger thing. I think you look back to the sort of yeah. TSR Gen Con days, there was tons of stuff going around all up and down all over the place, uh, and if we could get more of that, I think I'd be a happy bunny. Whatever happened to t-shirts? Now, I, I know that at Games Day, getting the Games Day t-shirt was a really big deal for staff as well as punters, because the staff would get one with their name on it, and you would be dressed up as a space marine, and I'd be Brother Stevens, or Veteran Sergeant Stevens, or whatever it was on the day. But the kids would buy their Games Day 94 shirt as well, and it would have a special design for that year. I think conventions used to do that, didn't mm-hmm. they? Wasn't there like a Gen Con 87 shirt? And, and and do you know what? People talk about how do we get people into the hobby these days. You could do worse than be a walking advert for it. I mean, I get a T-shirt for every time I enter a running race or go to a tournament or anything else like that. It's part of the entry yeah. fee. Whatever happened to those? Why isn't there a, a Furnace T-shirt for like Furnace 10 this year? Maybe there will be. And please, if you're an organiser of these things and you're frothing at your podcast material now just get in touch and tell me i'm wrong but where where are those things shouldn't we have those in again i think they were yeah, I definitely remember them from conception i don't know if they still do them but i've definitely got a couple of polo shirts in the back with uh, half a goblin face and the stuff like that i don't know mm. there seems to be yeah a, not apathy necessarily but there's a kind of uh vague disinterest or lack of it you see i'm trying to phrase it correctly but Compared to frothing Games Workshop fans, I think role players these days seem to be quite pedestrian. They don't seem very excited or willing to. You know, no one's really asking for t-shirts necessarily, or these extra things. Mm. There's not that passion there, which I find quite odd. You find it individually amongst little groups, or somebody wants to play in a particular person's game at a convention they know they're going to, or something like that. Mm. But I think we're sort of missing that kind of passion about the hobby generally as a whole which is a bit of a shame. Yeah, and, and that was the lesson that I took from, from Games Workshop and maybe one of the reasons I got to work for them in the first place is just be a passionate enthusiast for the hobby and and be a professional when they started paying me about my application of that passion. Um, and that's that's what leads, I suppose, you and me to making podcasts, guys, rather than just you know being a, a casual observer of our pastime, you know. We're going to be maybe a little bit more engaged, but but every GM is a hugely engaged person in this hobby. I know they are because they put in the effort and they put in the time and they put in the preparation sometimes, or they put in the 
the the job on the day, don't they? When the when the game starts and they're they're just on it for for those hours. And you know, I don't want to underappreciate people's passion for the hobby, but it's definitely Games Workshop get it right when it comes to the visibility of that passion. Um, it's not you know they're they're extroverts as gamers go, um, and and I guess that's why they attract some ire from from the more introverted among us, of, of which I am one. But um, but they're not afraid of of shouting about their stuff. Um, and and that, that shouting sometimes comes across in a bit of a bullying tone if you want to receive it that way. But to other people, it comes across in a kind of, yeah, I'll follow you anywhere kind of commandment. Um, and, and that's what I learned from them really is, you know, stand up for what you believe in and uh, take your fun very, very, very seriously if it's paying your rent. But also don't forget that it is fun uh, and that that's worth celebrating and really celebrating hard work, hard play hard. That's that's something I've taken forward. Yeah, I think one of the problems uh, or challenges with Games Workshop back in the day, as it was, was every time I went to a manager meeting every month, there'd be an empty seat and another manager had gone <laughs> uh, for one reason or another. But we don't yep. have that problem in role-playing or if you want to GM at a convention or something like that, I won't worry about it. Whereas at GWE, you had to be switched on all the time. Otherwise, you, you know, you're only as good as your last target and that kind of thing. That doesn't exist if we're going to draw parallels with role-playing. So if anybody's worried about not being passionate enough or think that we're going to tell you off for not being overly enthused or for not running a game at a convention or whatever else, that's not going to happen. I think we can take all the passion and enthusiasm from Games Workshop but not have all the, the virus bombs of shots where entire staff get taken out and all that kind of stuff as well. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We, we don't need to take everything you know, to, to the extreme, but I think take some elements of it and take the the flavour of what they do and apply that to role-playing, I think we'll be in a good place. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, for the, for the hobbyist, for the consumer, you know, crack on and just enjoy what you enjoy. I think some of the other lessons that, that are perhaps more directly applicable is if you are writing product or you're publishing um, or you want to be published is to look at the professional attitude that Workshop took to their business and still do take to their business, whether you like it or not. They make a very, very successful living out of geek hobby but they don't suffer fools at all in that process and and things have to earn their keep and they don't do vanity publishing um, which is really the hallmark of a lot of gaming publishing that we see today and and they do make what appear to be quite hard-nosed business decisions but trust me they're not if you work in the real world and <laughs> you, you will see what hard-nosed business decisions are like uh, games workshop are relatively fluffy compared to many a corporation i've worked yeah. for but if you know if you're going to work for a for a gaming company and you're thinking about which supplement to write next or which game to write next or whether to do those dice or not do those dice, you've got to remember that it's got to pay the bills. And if it doesn't pay the bills, put your efforts into something that will do within that hobby. Um, there are an awful lot of gaming companies that have gone under in the 30, 40 years that Games Workshop have been incredibly successful. Um, and some of them stayed very true to role-playing, but at a cost. And I think TSR would be the strongest example yeah. of a big company that went bust through just trying to be too hobby and not keeping enough of an eye on the accounts at the end of the day. Yeah, very true. Well, we're getting to that, uh, that time again, unfortunately, but as we, we're about an hour or so. Um, I'm really curious about these Ten Commandments because we haven't learned more about them yet and I can't remember what any of them are. <laughs> so, Do you want them? <laughs> yeah. Or if you can pick one or two out that you think are applicable or something like that. Yeah, I'll give you the, I'll give you the starter course. So, um, if you worked in Games Workshop retail, uh, which I did for a very long time, one of the 
One of the things that you were introduced to very, very early on was a thing called the Ten Commandments. And these were basically your rules of engagement with the customer. And all companies have these to a certain extent. They have brands or values, or if you certainly if you work in retail, there'll be a process that you have to follow, whether that be McDonald's or Waterstones or whatever. Um, and the Games Workshop ones, there were 10 of them. And and the reason I like to, to bring these out every now and again is I've worked in a few different companies since then, but these 10 commandments have always made sense because <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, they just do. And it might help you if you are one of the people who go into a Games Workshop every now and again, maybe out of nostalgia, maybe to buy some paints, maybe to get involved in Age of Sigmar. At whatever level you do, you might wonder why on earth the staff in these shops speak to you in the manner that they do because I know that that generates a lot of response. So I'll give you these 10 now, and there's possibilities, I guess, of another podcast on this, but this is mostly for nostalgia purposes, see if Gaz recognizes these. So number one, acknowledge all customers who enter the store, which is interesting because that's the first thing that pisses off the yeah, veterans. You weren't allowed to say hello, um, though, either. Or, all right, mate. Oh, Good Lord, yeah. How dare they say hello to you? Um, number two, be aware of customers and their behavior in the store. Uh <laughs> That includes them pissing themselves in the corner. That includes shoplifters. That includes, uh, I won't go on, there are many, many behaviours in the store that would, it's a good two-point story at least. Just meet me at a convention soon. Um, <laughs> number three, so show enthusiasm and be cheerful. Another one to upset the old-time gamers. Um, number four, be attentive and listen carefully to customer needs. Yeah, we all struggled with that. Number five, promote the hobby. And that underpins everything, I promise you. Uh, number six, establish a rapport with your customers. Number seven, display in-depth knowledge of company products. Number eight, maintain high levels of personal hygiene and appearance. I'll say no more. Uh, number nine, ask questions that obtain the best information concerning customer needs. And number 10, show courtesy. How's that for a nostalgia trip, guys? Did you remember all of those? Do you know what? Most of them could apply to GMs at conventions, couldn't they? There's a lot of stuff there yeah. about being attentive, listening to the needs, finding out what your players actually want, make sure you've washed, mm-hmm. you know, be enthusiastic and cheerful. A lot of that is just a recipe for running a good convention game, frankly. Totally, totally. And, and that's why I think it's worth bringing it up. And, and I know that those Ten Commandments have changed slightly over the years. They're not quite the same ones now. They've been honed a little bit. And we used to put hours into discussing each of these line by line, word by word as to as to what that means. And and that was just about really trying to hone your craft as a hobby professional. But you're right, guys. I think it's absolutely got a place in this podcast because those 10 rules, we could we could tinker with those a bit and they wouldn't be a bad set of guidelines for anybody who wanted to, to game as well as they could do. Absolutely. Well, I think that's about time. So um, that's it for me, I think. I've got plenty more war stories. And I'm sure you have as well, Baz. So if anybody fancies buying us a pint sometime, I'm sure we can regale you with many a tale. Um, some of them not fit for podcast, obviously. But have you any final thoughts, Baz? Now, the same as you, mate. I've got loads of war stories in this one. And if you want to find out um, how Andy Chambers nearly got fired from Games Workshop, that one's worth a drink. And most of them are about people getting fired, actually, including myself at the end. <laughs> so if you want to find out how I got fired from Games Workshop and Gaz has got a similar tale, it's well worth picking up with us. But you're right, mate, not for this podcast. It's been a good one. It's flown by. <laughs> okay, well, that's what the smart party would do when faced with Games Workshop from bitter experience or happy experience, depending on how you look at it or how modern you feel. But it's, uh, yes, 
Many more stories in the bag if you want to approach us and find out about them. But for this week, that's what the Smart Party would do. Goodbye. Cheers, guys. Thank <laughs> you.